This is Femi Kuti, and you are listening to NYC Radio Live. How you doing, folks? Good? I hope so. You're listening to NYC Radio Live. My name is David Ellenbogen. This was really an amazing show, a great opportunity. I got to sit down with a uh, legend of jazz, Chico Freeman. He's played with everybody. It's ridiculous. Um... Uh, just off the top of my head, we got to talk about uh, playing with Sun Ra, with Dizzy Gillespie, Art Blakey, Elvin Jones, McCoy Tyner, uh, The Temptations, Michael Jackson's, um, Jack DeJohnette, uh Oh man, it, it, it it's his father, Von Freeman, of course. This guy uh, uh, has lived the life. He, you know, he is jazz in a sense. Um, that's that's the family business, and um, for generations. Uh, so we get to talk about all that, and um, I got the opportunity because he's playing the um, Dizzy's Club, June seventh and eighth. That's at uh, Jazz at Lincoln Center. That's for your calendar. Also for your calendar, uh, from June 16th onward, the Rubin Museum of Art begins the, the Year of Sound exhibits. You guys are into sound, right? Sound? Yeah. Oh, um, so we're going to hear, uh, we'll start this with a track from Chico's uh, tribute to Elvin Jones album and we'll intersperse uh, a few others but it's a really amazing uh, discussion I feel like I, I learned a lot and uh, one thing we did not touch on or we, we just you know after I turned off the mics he's also a mathematician and and uh, so we're talking about uh, digital music and he was saying that it's a little complicated, but but uh, when they figured out how to use this uh, something called PCM and it's a way to turn music into binary numbers um, for digital, there's there's a way of, of of implying a curve by making smaller and smaller steps of these zeros and ones. And what he told me was that he spoke with one of the guys working for the major companies that developed this. And he had since retired. And he confided in um, our guests that, yes, they knew that it was harmful. <laughs> Musically harmful. That, that hearing that this little bit of noise that is in all digital recordings is actually uh, 
causes kind of stress. So um, enjoy this digital <laughs> podcast. Um, I don't know. If you're into vinyl, maybe that will inspire you. Anyway, uh, let's hear some music. If you're hearing some uh, planes and heavy machinery, I'm recording this introduction from lovely Prospect Heights, uh, important place in music. Within a few blocks, many of the important uh, people in the uh, Brooklyn Raga Massive organization all work here and all so many of the Wednesdays shows that you guys have heard uh, rebroadcast here are just around the corner so yeah alright thanks for listening enjoy this uh, music from Chico Freeman and uh, I think you'll get a lot out of the interview alright thanks for listening peace
You are listening to NYC Radio Live. My name is David Ellenbogen. Uh, thrilled to be here with a legend of jazz, Chico Freeman. Thanks for taking the time, man. Uh, to thank you for having me. Good to be with you. Um, so, I guess right off the bat, I, I learned that your that your grandfather was some kind of personality in Chicago, well-known <laughs> guy, and uh, uh, Louis Armstrong was was tight with him, and and so what, yeah, what, what was the story there? How'd well, uh, <clears throat> when Louis Armstrong came up uh, from New Orleans uh, to Chicago, prior to him joining the Benny Goodman band, uh, he stayed. He lived with my grand, my father. My, my father. Well, he lived with my grandparent, my grandfather. They were tight. My grandfather was a policeman. He was one of the first black policemen on the Chicago police force, and also jazz a pianist. So, <clears throat> Louis stayed with uh, my grandparents, and my father and my and his two brothers were kids. Uh, so during that time, I think my father was around six, seven, eight years old, somewhere in there. But he got a chance to listen to his father and Louis Armstrong play duets in the house, you know, just hanging out. Wow. And uh, he, <clears throat> and then, um, uh, so Louis stayed there for a while, and then he got the gig with uh, Benny Goodman. And uh, then he was obviously able to be on his own, and he right. moved so, down So to what years place. are we talking? Well, I, I don't know, you know those exactly. years. Because, <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, the the legend, which I guess is true, of, of jazz is, is Louis Armstrong bringing it up from Chicago on a steam, I mean, to Chicago on a steamboat from New Orleans. But that was him coming up, and I guess playing with King Oliver, stuff like that. So I, I don't know if this is around that period or <coughs> I'm not later, sure. I honestly, I wouldn't yeah. want to lie to you, so I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, okay, so it's the family business, right? Well, like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, from, from the roots of, of the thing. And, um, and your dad, okay, so your dad's hearing this stuff when he's like six or seven, and then obviously he... He becomes a very important uh, jazz musician playing. Uh, yeah, Chicago. him and his two brothers, my uncle George, who's 90 years old this year. Guitarist. And guitarist, and my uncle Bruz, who's the drummer, who passed away already. And right. my dad, of course, passed away already. <clears throat> and, and from my understanding, those guys Fine. became like a, a rhythm section, uh, or, or not exactly rhythm section because your dad's saxophone, but uh, they would accompany all a lot of the big shot guys. That's correct. They had yeah. a band called the Freeman Brothers. Like okay. the Heath Brothers in Philadelphia. Right. Yeah, there was the Freeman Brothers. And uh, many of the guys that came through Chicago, they were back with my, the Freeman Brothers band mm -hmm. was uh, the band that played for them, including Charlie Parker, Dizzy uh, Gillespie, just so many of them. Wow. So Charlie Parker <clears throat> must have been before your time. You must have. Yes, he was before my time. Yeah, but... Uh, you ended up having some associations with, with Dizzy, right? Yeah, I played with Dizzy. I went to Cuba with Dizzy. First time I ever went to Cuba. <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, that's yeah. another historic kind of thing. Yeah. I mean. So, uh, where were you? Havana? Yeah. And, uh, I mean, from everything that I've, I've met, talked to a few people who met Dizzy, and he sounds like uh, he was uh, generally energized, positive, funny guy. Yeah. Um, 
but I imagine he was just a light in, in Cuba, right? Like, was oh, he just yeah, well, he, well, you know, he, Chano Pozo, that's the big, you know, he yeah. discovered Chano Pozo in Cuba years, years, years before, and did, he was one of the first guys to, uh, if not the first, I, I, I won't say the first, because that's, uh, yeah, who knows? I don't know, but surely one of them, if not the first, mm -hmm. uh, to collaborate with Cuban musicians in jazz. Right. And so he was a force in Cuba because he, in some ways, he introduced jazz to Cuba, you know, from this from this side of the, the ocean, the sea, Caribbean, <clears throat> to that side. Right. Because his association with Chano Pozo is, yeah. is historic. And I guess Chano Pozo was the guy that kind of figured out how to match uh, the Cuban drum to a, to a swing thing. Like he figured out how to how to place that. From, from what I've heard. I, you know, that's interesting you say he yeah. figured out how to do this. I don't know if things like that, you know, musicians, we don't think yeah. like that. Okay. You know, we just play. I right. mean, we hear something you like it and you, and maybe in, maybe that's the process of figuring it out. But okay. it's, when you say it like that, yeah, it just yeah, sounds yeah. a little scientific, laboratorial, right. you know. Yeah. Well, yeah. on a tangent, speaking of scientific, <laughs> and, uh, I know you, you have a, a math background, right? I do. So I was going to ask you about uh, music and math. Okay. I mean, you know, uh, there's this uh, expression, uh, music is the spontaneous mathematics of the soul. You know, like, for you, uh, where, how, how, how <coughs> does music line up with math and, and, and how does it, how is it totally separate? Well, first of all, mathematics, uh, we can see the similarities with math and music. I mean, the basic similarities. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> the way notes are, you know, the, the, the duration of notes, uh, particularly when we're reading music, you, you know, we're dealing with fractions, basically. Whole notes, four, four. Half sure. notes, one half. <laughs> you know, quarter yeah. notes, one quarter. It's like fractions. And so we divide time in the, in the basic, uh, the same principle that we use uh, fractions and right. relate that to the division of most everything uh, there are other more advanced formulas which I actually wrote a lot of music using mathematical formulas uh, in, some, in my early, earlier part in the early part of my career but <clears throat> the truth is is that mathematics defines life not only music but all life I mean um, when I was uh, getting my degree in mathematics we were given two options. One was to go a practical direction. The other was to go into more esoteric. I chose the esoteric because the formulas and things that we were dealing with, there had not been any use discovered in the practical world yet at that time for a lot of the things that math uh, was figuring out. Mm -hmm. And I found that to be more interesting, you know. So we were dealing with infinite series and things far into the future, but the, the space program, for example, <clears throat> they tried to recruit me, or I should say, they tried, yeah, they tried to recruit me for the NASA, you know, mm -hmm. uh, out of college, and uh, I considered it <clears throat> to go down there and work, you know, the mathematics on the space mm -hmm. program, I declined, uh, but at that time, that's what they, that they had figured out how to make practical application, how to use the math, this esoteric math. But the math was so far ahead of even what the space program was doing. Now today, computers and so many other things that wasn't happening then were using some of the formulas that I was working on back then. And so now math is still far ahead. So basically, 
uh, <clears throat> the idea is that math sort of blazes the trail that we follow until we, until we can find uses that we, you know, practical uses for mathematics. So, and then the other thing is, is, which is quite interesting, math, I say it defines everything. You look at your, your, your houses, anything. I mean, it's all mathematically, they're all mathematical principles involved. From travel to the building, architecture, everything. It's just we found ways to use math. Um, and, and, it, and, and mix it with creativity. So, you know, some of the beautiful designs of, in our, of architecture, these things, you know, I mean, they, it can be explained so mathematically. Mm -hmm. So even if something comes up creativ creativity, creative, creatively, sorry about that, something comes up creatively, uh, that maybe the artist is not thinking mathematics at all. Mathematics can look at it and backwards it, you know, define mm -hmm. it mathematically. Uh, and, and it, there's a book called um, uh, the, Sch the Schillinger System of uh, Composition. And in that book, it's all about mathematics and music. I studied that book. And one of the interesting things is at the end of the book, <clears throat> he takes simple pop music and things at that time and shows how his book actually defines the, the mathematical principles that have already existed in very simple based pop music. Mm. So, Yeah, I feel like I heard... I heard that a lot of people were using that. If I remember correctly, like even the Tim Pan Alley guys might may unless unless I'm confusing with I, I, I honestly don't yeah. know okay. what the Tim Pan Alley yeah. guys did, but it's yeah. possible. I mean, yeah. So I, I'd like to hear a little more about you, th these compositions that you were doing back in the day, based on, on mathematical principles. Well, uh, I actually learned. I was introduced uh, to the book by Muhar Richard Abrams mm -hmm. of the AACM. And uh, he was the one that introduced me. And so I studied with him. He taught, he basically taught the book and used the book in his class of co composition. And so that's how I, that was my beginning with it. And <clears throat> many of the formulas and, and principles laid out in the book, which if I go into detail, that's kind of boring, but, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but the, many of the principles laid out in the book, we actually did in class. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I learned that. So I continue to carry on with those principles. Right. And, uh, uh, and, and, and some of the er, my earlier compositions, a lot of them were, were written with those principles in mind, right? And other things. And then, of course, I developed some of my own. You know, but since I was a mathematician anyway, you know, it, it, that's the thing. Everything is relative. That's that whole thing with Einstein, the theory of right. relativity. But everything is relative. So you can take one thing and relate it in a certain way, and, and take something else, and you know, and move it around in a relative manner and get a different result. Mm -hmm. But I, have you found that sometimes something that is very elegant uh, mathematically might not sound so great? Is Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you something. Uh, Muhal and I, we had a, an interesting, th interesting thing. In order to open your ears, um, you could write, I could, I, I have actually have written compositions and uh, math with math based on mathematical principles and not necessarily with oral principles you know just you know anthony braxton used to do all kind of mathematical things for example and muha would say well okay what you have to do is if you write it you have to listen to it you have to commit to that 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 the, that the math is correct and that whatever sounds comes out it, it may be most people, what they think sounds good is usually things they've already heard. Mm 
right are usually things that they've already heard so when something doesn't sound good to you at least upon first hearing it's because you never really heard it before so you would have to discipline yourself and listen to it over and over again now after repeated listenings most times or a lot of times your ear starts to adjust all of a sudden you you hear you start to hear this mm-hmm. and um, so when we would when I would write a song I would I would do two things I would have I did what I would call objective listening and subjective the objective one I would <clears throat> force myself I played over and over again uh, you know even if I didn't like it or thought I didn't like it and eventually, I'd start to hear it, and it became something that I actually kind of liked. The subjective hearing was I would, I would take that and immediately change what I didn't like. You know, I'd alter a note or whatever, right. or something, you know, that, you know, and that was subjective because it was, but it was always based on clearly what I was already used to. Right. So sometimes I'd end up with two compositions, one that was, but then my ears started to expand, and I began to embrace sounds heretofore I, I wasn't happy with wow so that was a, that was an interesting process that I used to use yeah days. well this this sounds like some more uh, Chicago stuff in that like uh, Sun Ra was there and this whole <laughs> he's exactly the name I was thinking about just now go ahead yeah well I mean uh, you know this whole uh, you're playing what you know play what you don't know exactly. kind of thing so uh, yeah, both both you and your your father play with Samra. Maybe, I mean, these guys now and today they they're like icons, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's we're very lucky to to be around people like you who've actually been close and worked with them. So I, I don't know what 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 came to mind about him and, and what could you share about him as a, as a, a person and a musician, not just a image and icon. Well, as a as a well, he was he was a special person. Um, there are many stories that abound about Sun Ra and various things. Uh, Sun Ra always said he wasn't from this planet. <laughs> right. He was from Saturn. And I, I, I don't think it was a total show for him, you know. But, uh, you know, his music was, uh, during that time particularly, he was a pioneer and his music wasn't, uh, a lot of things he did and played were unfamiliar sure. to the average ear. And my dad played with him. Uh in fact, funny thing, Arthur Hoyle, trumpet player in Chicago, he, I was playing, just playing in Chicago. He came to see me, and um, he played in Sunrise Band with my dad, so the, he's legendary in Chicago. And Burgess Gardner, Vincent Gardner's son, he was a, a you know, Vincent the trombone player, he plays at the Lincoln Center with okay, uh, yeah, the yeah, band. Yeah. He's from Chicago, and his father, Burgess, they, they also played with my dad. I played with Sunrise when I actually, I, the funny thing, my dad played with Sunrise when Sunrise was in Chicago. I played with Sun Ra here in New York. In the East Village? Well, here in New York. Well, okay. he, I, I should say the East Coast. He was living in Philadelphia right, right, right. at the time. Okay. So I used okay. to go to Philadelphia to rehearse and everything. All right. But, um, but, but when I say right. here. Because there mean, used to be that, that gig at Slugs or something. Yeah, right? no, I wasn't okay, here then. I'm the, too young for that. Okay, that but, was earlier. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But I played with Sun Ra here. So okay. Continue that. So <clears throat> I had the opportunity. I met those guys when I was young, very young. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, like Marshall, right. Colin, and Pat Patrick, and John Gilmore, and everything. Right. Then I got to play with all of them <clears throat> here, you know, so, and Sunrise. 
And one thing Sunrise did, which was quite interesting, I went to Philadelphia to rehearse. And I think I had to stay there. We rehearsed like two or three days. So I didn't, I stayed there. And anyway, so we were rehearsing and Sunrise pulls out his book. This is the first time I, this is the very first time I play, I'm rehearsing with him. First time I've ever, you know, been in a band with him. So the music stands are there and he's got the music in front. So the first thing I notice is that we're reading the charts. I am anyway, and some of the younger players, Ahmed Abdullah, I remember him being there. And um, so we're reading, Sunrise counting off and we're reading and playing the music. And I just happen to look down, I'm looking at Marshall and John and Pat and those guys, you know, the original guys in the band. And they're playing the charts and they're not reading the charts. They're not reading at all. It's all by memory. And I, I realized how long they had been with him just in that moment. So I was like, wow. And they're playing it perfectly and stuff. And you know, we're really mm -hmm. working hard right. to read all this stuff, right? And so we, were, we rehearsed for two or three days, reading all this music and everything. Then after the first rehearsal, Sunrod, everybody leaves. Sunrod asked me to stay. And he takes me into this room. And in this room, he's got tapes. I mean, just tapes all over the wall, you know, uh, back then, you know, analog tapes, reel to reel, yeah. And he started, and he had cassettes, and he starts playing music for me. Even old vinyl, you know, you know, those 78s and stuff. He's, and he's playing it, and I'm, I'm totally amazed the music he played for me. And this was all him, his music, mm. and various recordings of him, live and otherwise. And I heard music, I thought, wow. That sounds like Miles, but this was before Miles. Mm -hmm. And I heard other things, and so I started to hear how many people had been influenced by Sun Ra, you know, in so many different ways. And the music was awesome. It was like listening to Duke Ellington or something. When I say listening to Duke Ellington, I don't mean the same music, but, you know, the massive amount of productivity that he had. When I think right. of the most prolific composer that I know of in, in American music, it's Duke Ellington. You know, he's the, for me, he's the most prolific. Mm -hmm. He wrote the most music of anybody. And here, but his music did get out, you know what I mean? It right. got out. But here's Sunrise playing all of this music, and he wrote all of this music and, play, and record. And I'm really realizing how prolific he was. But nobody heard this. It, this was like music that hadn't been, that wasn't uh, um, disseminated in the same way. So uh, this was quite amazing to me. And then I, that's when I really realized his genius and who he was and, and what he had contributed. And a lot of people didn't know, but the people there knew. Like, that's what I realized. Like, what I understood he had the same magnetism in the same way as Duke Ellington had with his guy, with Johnny Hodges and Harry Carney and all those guys that stayed with him for years sure. and years and never, and didn't want to leave ever. You know, and I wonder, you know, you wonder why, why were they, they were committed to the music that he wrote. They loved that music and they stayed there for that, many of them for that main reason. Then I realized there was a similar thing happening with Sunrise, John Gilmore and Pat Patrick and, you know, Marshall Allen, that all of this music that I heard from Sunrise, I could understand because it was, it was, it was amazing what I heard. Yeah. I mean, I guess there is something of being like, ahead of your time or before your time right yeah. like because his stuff 
is like now it's emerging as the more influential th yeah. thing in a sense. I mean, because you hear, uh, I mean, particularly through John Gilmore influencing John Coltrane, and then that's it, you yeah. know. But you know, John Coltrane and my Uncle George were tight. They played together with uh, well, John Coltrane after Earl Bostic and stuff. My, my uncle, when he first came to to uh, New York from Chicago, him and John Coltrane were tight hanging out and playing together. Mm. And wow. he was playing alto then. Okay. Yeah. So I found that out just recently, like a okay. few days ago. He just we told did me a, about that. <laughs> we did an interview in Chicago, and, and this came out yeah. in the interview. I was like, wow. I thought I knew. I, I know a lot about my family, but this one right. was a new. This one was a surprise. So Chicago's an interesting town because, uh, you know, on one hand, you had the Sun Ra influence and, and the AACM scene which I'd like to learn a little bit more about but then you also had the experience of kind of uh, playing with the original Chicago blues guy like Memphis Slim that was that I mean that's, that's yeah buddy legit. guy Junior Wells okay you like got with that, those yeah. guys too wow yeah. so that's the other that's another side of the, the coin right I mean it, yeah. it's almost I well, mean, Chicago's the home of the of the urban blues, right? And and you got a taste of that that real. Well, if you live in Chicago, and you're a musician, and you want to be a good, you know, you you usually have to do that. Mm -hmm. you, you, not only blues, but certain R and B things. I mean, I got to play with the with Curtis Mayfield and the Impressions and stuff like that when I first the Dells that side as well as and that blues because the blues side is there, there's a blues scene in Chicago. Right. And you have to play the blues. I mean, that's Chicago. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, I, I've heard this kind of quote from Charlie Parker where he said, you know, if we lose the blues, we lose everything. Like, do you feel that having that, being rooted in that way, well, is that important? Like, I mean, can, can, can a, a musician let go of that side and and only be on the free side or, or do you feel that th that having that connection uh, well, is important clearly a musician can let it go and, and only be on the free side but I mean in my opinion he's limited if, if that if he does he or she does that there they are limited that connection to the blues uh, I do believe it's extremely important it's uh, the blues is almost like mathematics in a, in a different kind of way. I mean, it's the folk music of America, particularly of Black America, mm -hmm. but it's the folk music of America, uh, modern, you know, this America, and uh, <clears throat> prior to the Native Americans. And uh, one of the things when I went to Europe, uh, one of the things I was interested in was to. I know what jazz does. It's, it's, it's jazz is music of self-expression, and uh, I know what it means to me and to people I know. In, in you know what is it's about in terms of what how it's reflected in our lives, or how it reflects our lives. You know, in this expression and how important it is. So one of the things I wanted to see was people who live in different cultures, what how they express themselves or what that music means in relationship mm. to their life and their culture. And that was one of the things I was very interested. So I got an opportunity to play with gypsies and 
in, in Bulgaria, Hungary, Spain, the, the flamenco gypsies, and all, all kind of things. In Greece, the, the, that music there and their folk, and I found their folk music. You go to see hear people's folk music, the Ganawan musicians, you know, in Af different places, and how does that re relate to their lifestyles, or what was their lifestyles at the time that music was, you know, first created, or or the history of that? Like Irish, even Irish folk songs, you know, all of that is relative. So. One of the things I learned that in, in Spain, the gypsies, flamenco music is like, is comparable to the blues, to mm -hmm. our blues, you know, in America. And uh, it was, and the, uh, the real flamenco musicians are gypsies. Even though I had the opportunity, I, you, you ever heard of Paco de Lucia? Of course. I had the great opportunity of playing with him. Incredible. Wow. But I also had the opportunity with Arthur Blythe and, Don Pullman, we went to a uh, to a gypsy place, and stayed there till the next day, playing all night long wow. until like the next day at noon or one o'clock in the afternoon. And these were the the blues players, like the blues players in the South, mm -hmm. you know, down there, or <clears throat> or the you know uh, this experience and that. And I, I understood that how it related to, and I began to be, it began to be uh, revealed to me how that uh, music and how it connected to the life, to their life and the life that they were living and leading uh, relative to the society, the Spanish society and all those other things that we have uh, and music speaks to. Mm. Yeah, you know, there's one, one interesting thing like the gypsy thing and the blues thing and a lot of the kind of transcendent folk musics is that the interactivity with the audience, like there's, in each of those groups, the, the audience will always have something that they'll yell back to the to the musicians. You know, I, I found that to be, a, you know, the case. Um, wow. So were you? I mean, also the the dances must help. Like if you're trying to get into a Bulgarian rhythm or something like that, I would imagine that that might be a a door into into how all that that music. Operates. It shows another part of the culture. Yeah, and how the music, how people relate to the music, because um, which is kind of interesting, uh, I would say. Um, people, because because uh, dance is visual, and people look at dancers. Sometimes people um, think that dance informs the music, mm. and you know, uh, in all music, dance is important. I mean, the most popular music is music that people feel they can dance to. And uh, even in jazz, I mean, Monka was talking about that in this interview. Like when they had to play, they had to make sure people danced. Right. They played for these dances, and if you didn't make the people dance, you know. And even uh, like Lionel Hampton and those guys, they, you know, he was with this, he was swinging, and people danced to that music and going crazy. It wasn't until Charlie Parker that people somehow got became attracted to just sitting and listening. Yeah. You know, without dance, uh, the music still swung. Right. But it was more. I don't, I don't want to say intellectual. I really don't want to use that word. Yeah. But it, it, it was more cerebral in a way. You right. know, I mean, it was more melodically intricate. Yeah. So people actually had uh, were, were, were um, felt more like they wanted to sit and listen to it than to move right. than to move their bodies to it. Yeah. They pat their foot, right. but it was more up in their head because melody it connects with your your you know uh, your mind. Sure, harmony is like your emotions mm. in your heart. And rhythm is, is your body, physical. So, and, and these three elements of music usually connects with one one or more of these at, a, at, at any given time. Right. 
So <clears throat> uh, the dance music part, when you see how people dance, so people, when they watch people dance, sometimes the music is secondary to them. Sure. They, you know, when you think all these dances and you know popular mm. music, R&B, funk, whatever, right. uh, you see how people move. But the reason that people move the way they move is actually based on the, mu the rhythms that the music projects. Where the accents lie, it's the music that generates the movement right. from people, you know? Mm -hmm. And uh, that was very interesting. It's like when I went to Greece and you see, you know, that Greek dancing, for, oh, yeah. almost like falling off a log kind of thing that mm -hmm. they do. And I was wondering, they would be playing, and it was interesting to me <laughs> that the, the, the way they moved their bodies didn't seem so connected to the rhythm of what the, you know, the music was playing. The music was actually, they, they played this clarino, mm -hmm. like a clarinet, okay. and it's very technical. Okay. You know, this Bulgarian stuff like that. And the, the, the Greeks are dancing like this, you know, like Zorba, you know. Right, right. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, they're not really in the beat with the, <laughs> you know. But it was interesting that that's how they expressed themselves. And that was something that was uh, very uh, revealing to me hmm. in, in my travels during that. Yeah. Wow. What a journey. Wow. Okay. So, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit, like, um, about that AACM scene? Because I, I don't really understand. It was it. It was it was a real school. It was it was school with classes. Or? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Well, when I came uh, for my my journey in the AACM started in college actually. Um, there was a guy named Fred Anderson who lived in Evanston. I went to Northwestern University and uh, a pianist by the name of Steve Colson. I dig okay, Steve Colson, he calls himself. And um, we put a band together in school called The Life and Death Situation. And uh, we were playing. And he was heavily influenced by Andrew Hill mm -hmm. and Cecil Taylor. Okay, you so know, but uh, and I don't know, we were playing somewhere on the campus, and we met a guy named Fred Anderson. Cool. And he introduced us to a guy named Billy Brimfield. Billy Brimfield is a trumpet player. Fred just sort of took us under our wing. I don't his wing under his wing. He he invited us to come to his house, and uh, his son uh, Gene Anderson played drums. But we would go to his house, and Fred just became kind of like a mentor. We were, he was, and uh, Fred played pretty. I don't want to use the word avant-garde, but he mm -hmm. he was out there, you know, and as as experimental, let's say, sure. as he was playing. Uh, all he did was put Charlie Parker records on for us. Mm. We go to his house and he just played Bird all the time. He didn't play any any of the then, you know, Ornette Coleman right. or uh, then experimental Cecil Taylor. He, he didn't play it. He played only Charlie Parker for the most part. And we he just sort of turned us on to Bird like this and and, and a few others like Gene Ammons and you know uh, other saxophone players, but mostly Charlie Parker. And his wife, sometimes she would cook for, cook dinner for us because we'd be there. And one night we spent the night at his house, slept on the floor. So we just, uh, we would go there and he would just, I don't know, he just uh, filled our heads with a lot of information. And so we sort of st started a chapter of the AAC in, in Evanston. We just did that because he was in the AAC and he had been in the AAC. Mm -hmm. I was. But he, had, he lived in Evanston and, and Muhammad was in Chicago on the south side. So we did that. And then, but before that, we didn't know about Muhammad, so this was all Fred. And then when we were about to graduate, he gave us uh, Muhammad's uh, phone number and information. So when I, when I got to Chicago uh, after graduating school, 
called up Muhal, and he invited me and Agdego Kayani Kwakosin, who's now Agdego Kay's wife, invited us to go to uh, come to the A's because he had a building, Child City. Uh, Pete Cozy, who guitar player who played yeah. with Miles Davis, mm -hmm. his mother uh, had a daycare center, and uh, she had it was a building where they, you know, where the children she did daycare for children, and we used that building. Muhal used that building for his. Uh, for AACM activities. It was sort of like our, she allowed that to happen. And to do, we did concerts there, and, and when the kids weren't there, you know, we had the, we had the rooms for classes and everything. So it was li literally like a real school. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> uh, so went down there, and I went, walked into his class, composition class, and he was teaching composition. And I, st I stayed I there, and I stayed. And, that was, and he and I became close. And later, uh, I started going to his house you know, aside from the AACM activities school. And he started turning me on to even people before Charlie Parker, like James B. Johnson. Mm. And, I mean, really, he went way back. And I learned a lot. He had records and things like that. And I was like, I learned about these people I'd never heard of in my life. But they were like, I was like, wow. Sid Catlett and, you know, just all kinds of people. So I got a great education from, from Muhal. Uh, and it was a special education because it was... Um, some of the great African-American musicians from you know, days before. Then add to that my dad and my uncle and you know my, my uncles and listening to the rehearsals and stuff that they did and played. I mean, I met people like Andrew Hill and because Andrew lived in Chicago and Ahmad Jamal and other people. <clears throat> and uh, so music was all around me. Right. Yeah. But when I was in high school, all I wanted to do was sing like the Temptations. <laughs> right. Well, you yeah. got, and you you got in. I mean, you got you got your you got into that thing, right? I, I did mean, do you got that, those yeah. gigs. Yeah, I sang. I did a lot of singing. I was in singing groups. And, uh -huh. did that. and then even when I got out of college, I I, I, I played. I joined the Earth, Wind, and Fire for a while and played with them. Mm -hmm. and, uh, <clears throat> and some of the and the good thing was some of the great best musicians in Chicago were in that band. Oscar Brashear, who later moved to California, became one of the premier studio musicians out there. He's on a lot of, you know, a lot of times people don't know what great musicians are on these pop recordings because they never listed the names of the musicians right. on, the, you know, on these famous groups and artists, the singers mostly. They never, you never know who's playing. Right. It wasn't until later that uh, <clears throat> they started putting musicians' name on there. That's how people found out that Michael Brecker was on a lot of you know, commercial records because they started putting the names of people, the musicians on it. But prior to that, they didn't do that. And there were some of the, I mean, you just, the, the, the Motown, mm -hmm. the, the Funk, Funk Brothers, right? Right. Uh, nobody, they were all jazz musicians. Mm -hmm. Nobody really knew and knew about them until after Motown became iconic. Right. Yeah, so. Right. Um, so was that 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 was kind of a dream to come true in a way for you to play with all these the, the highest oh, level. Oh, I had I had yeah I had I was playing with great musicians, uh, um, really great musicians. And the Regal Theater, which is sort of like the Apollo of Chicago, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, yeah. we call that part of the it was the Chitlin Circuit mm -hmm. uh, for black musicians uh, and artists in general, yeah. you know, to travel there. And my dad had played the Regal. I saw him play the Regal all the time. But it, it used to be Jack, Duke Ellington played the Regal. Count Basie played the Regal, you know, back then. Then the music changed. And then R&B and pop. And then, then you got people like, uh, you know, the Dells and the Spinners and others, you know, the blues guys, B.B. King, Albert King. And um, 
you know, just uh, uh, all the Motown, the whole Motown review would, would go there. So that was my generation. So I, I played with a lot of those guys, and I'm playing with some of the great, really good musicians in Chicago because the bands that we had there to back up these guys. So I played with the Temptations, the Isley Brothers, the Four Tops, the, the Dells, the Spinners, uh, you know, Curtis wow. Mayfield, uh, Lou Rawls, who's from Chicago, singer, you know, blues singer. Um, and he had a pop hit. And um, a lot of lot of people I got to play with. And one of the guys that was really uh, helped me, because when I first started, I was green. Mm -hmm. And uh, was a guy named Donald Myrick. We called him Hipbone. And he, at the same time the AACM was going on, there was another group called the Pharaohs. Phil Coran had this, uh, he was kind of like, he and Muhal started out together trying to do something, then they kind of split. Uh, with, they had different ideas of which way they wanted to go. And so they ended up starting their own, Muhal with the ASM and Phil Coran with the Pharaohs. And Hipmo was, had been in that particular group. And, uh, but he and I w played some of those blues clubs together. And actually the first time I got my first gig uh, playing with one of, in that kind of um, R&B um, arena, I was the first time I was green, and Hipmo was sitting next to me. He was playing alto, and I was playing tenor. And I, I, I was—I hadn't had any experience in this yet. And he was very helpful to me. He helped make sure I was in the right place and and everything. And we became—and we did so well that after that, they would call. We, we got to be on the first call, mm. and they would—they called both of us. So we had an opportunity. We played together a lot. So we became very close. And he's the one who started the Phoenix Horns, which is the, he also played with Earth, Wind and Fire, but he played with Earth, Wind and Fire after Maurice White went to um, LA. And uh, so the Phoenix Horn, that horn section, okay. all those guys, Romney, Michael Davis, uh, Louis Satterfield, um, Michael Harris, and, and Hipmo, Donald Myron, were all Chicago guys, musicians, oh, wow. and they, uh, that and so um, Hipmo started the Phoenix Horns, and that was the Phoenix Horns. They played on Phil Collins's uh, records, and and uh, so every time Hipmo came to town, when he came, I, yeah. he went to L.A., I went to New York. Right. I played with Elvin Jones. He was, he joined Earth Wind and Fire, but we both had played with Earth Wind and Fire in Chicago when Maurice White right. first started the band, which is after Maurice White left uh, Ramsey Lewis, wow. the Ramsey Lewis trio. So that that's out of that little historical thing. Right, so it can't be the worst thing to tell like an aspiring girlfriend that you're gonna go play with Earth, Wind, and Fire that night, right? I mean, that's gotta be a. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I wasn't thinking about that. Oh, you weren't thinking about that? No, <laughs> no. no. Wow. Yeah. So that's incredible. So you had the, the deep, deep, deepest of the blues, because I mean, from my understanding, Memphis Slim. I mean, he was he was on Bill, Bill, Big Bill Brunzi records and mm -hmm. stuff. I mean, that's. Yeah. That's it. That's that's where it's Well, my started. dad played with all those blues guys, too. So mm -hmm. You know, all of them. So Memphis and my dad had played together already. So when I got there and played with it, so I was kind of like, that was very cool. I played with him also. Another place I played with him was in London at the uh, at Ronnie Scott's. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting. Right. And did you find, so? yeah, I mean, well, I was just thinking, you know, my original thought was just like, I mean, in Chicago, you're getting this AACM and the Sun Ra, you know, this kind of uh, experimental, experimental music. We called, music. It we called it experimental music, yeah. And then you're getting the deep, deepest of the blues with uh, Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters around and, and, on, and all that. 
And then you're getting to play with uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire and Temptations. I mean, that's it. I mean, that's that's American. I also I mean, played fusion. There was a band called Street Dancer. Uh-huh. I joined um, Kenny Elliott, a great drummer. Um, he's living in L.A. now, but he was. We were in Chicago and uh, uh, together, and we we joined this band. Street dancer, Kestudis Stankowski, I think is his name. His name was. He was the bass player, and he was the leader of the band. Mm-hmm. And this was all fusion stuff, playing nines and sevens, and right. you know that fusion kind yep, of. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> yeah. Electric basses. Yeah, and all of that. So that was an experience. Uh, but yeah, so Chicago yeah. has a whole array of musical genres that right. uh, you know. To and also, did did the at the AACM was there a um, kind of spoken political thing was that something that was spoken of or it was just implied in the music you know uh, like or with, with the with the, a- with the AACM a- music uh-huh. you know that the music that came out of there I mean it, it feels like it's a statement it feels like it's well there was there were a lot of political things going on at uh-huh. the time so yes many musicians chose to express uh, their uh, political views at, at the time I mean you know we're dealing with uh, civil rights at that time mm-hmm. we're dealing with uh, Martin Luther King and 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 um, cattle prods being put on him. He, wow. he, he all the, pro, the the protests and marches that Martin Luther King did in the South and everything. They put hoses hoses on them, you know, water hoses. Right. But it wasn't until they came to Chicago that they actually put a cattle prod. They used cattle prods. Wow. So, yeah, we had we spoke about that, and then um, there was a lot of political stuff going on, and the music did reflect it. I mean, it can't it, it can't not. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, that's what I was talking about self-expression. If it's really about self-expression and these things are happening in your life, how can you not express them, or how can they not right. be connected? And one thing that that I, I try to wrap my head around a little bit is that when I hear, you know, Ornette in nineteen early nineteen sixties or whatever. Or, or Cecil Taylor or these guys. It seems to me to be connected with, as you're saying, everything that's going on, right? You know, uh, everything coming to a boil, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 and uh, civil rights movements and, and radical movements starting. And then now when I hear people say, oh, I play free, and it sounds very similar to that I kind of scratch my head and I'm like how how are you how is that free <laughs> if it sounds like 40 years ago like I, I don't know what were your thoughts on the way this kind of music has become codified well I don't think it has become codified I think no. what happened is is that even back then they tried to call the there were different labels for the music mm-hmm. they had avant-garde uh, they had free they called it free music in fact that t- label I, I, I always rejected that you play, f- play free music. And I said, no, I get paid. Right. <laughs> and, and, but that was a name that many musicians, that was a moniker that a lot of musicians that were playing. I preferred experimental music mm-hmm. because there were, I, I, I believe in freedom through discipline. And um, the freedom is just being, in my opinion, what the word freedom is mean. The more you're able to do something with ease and you know, and, and, and the better you become, it gives you a certain freedom to express yourself. And that, to me, Charlie Parker, play, it, 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 by that definition, Charlie Parker played free music. 
Right. You know, he, he practiced for uh, two, three years, eight to ten hours a day, every day. That, that diligence and, and dedication gave him the ability to play the way he played. That discipline. That's what, and it made him, it gave him the ability to freely express himself. So that's what free means to me. Uh, not this being able to willy-nilly and just, you know, do this. So what we were doing, and uh, we were playing experimental music. We were experimenting with different, and that's what I looked at my music. I experimented with forms. There was always structure, you know. I don't believe anything is completely free like that because there's always some rules that bind you, some rules that govern you on some level, somewhere. I mean, just living on this planet, the rule of gravity. Can't beat that one, yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> so Structure. So I, I, I experimented with structure. I experimented with harmony. You know, I experimented with melody and, and, and mixed them all together. And it was all experimental. That's what, Muhal, that's what we were always doing. And like I said, you know, it, with mathematical principles, there are many things that you can, elements that you can bring into. Like I, in this case, it was like science, you know, trying to figure out how to do this, you know. And if I do this, what happens when I do that? And, and so that's just experimenting, experimental. So that I believe that that means I believe Sun Ra, myself, AACM, Pharaohs, all you know, Cecil Taylor, you know, Arnett. <clears throat> Sometimes we, they came up with systems, Arnett's harmonic system, you know, and Cecil Taylor's structure. He, he had did a record called Unit Structures, and um, I realized later, uh, writer Gary Giddens, who I have great respect for. Uh, was one of the first writers to understand what Cecil Taylor was doing, wow. to hear it and understand it. And it took him some time, you know, to, to, to listen. But then he found out that things Cecil Taylor was playing, they weren't free at all. Cecil Taylor practiced, and he came up with these really crazy-ass, <laughs> you know, melodic structures and rhythmic structures. But he could repeat them. Right. He could write them down. They were not... Complete, you know, yeah. totally. They were. He had songs that did, and, and and if you listen, there's patterns and things there. And uh, so, that, you know, that's what I think. This, this, you know, any intelligent person or anybody that's uh, wants to be good at something, be the best at something. You know, look at any sports figure, my, from Dr. J, Elgin Baylor to Michael Jordan. You know, now to uh, Kobe and LeBron James, you can see a lineage of connection with how their bodies move and what they do and how they attack the basket all of these things and when they became creative and tried to do something different and experimented you know now we got a whole when you say codify um, now we have a whole they have the slam dunk contest which contest which used to be just a, that was just a, a thing right you know but now it's a whole <laughs> yep you know so i mean yeah that's how things develop and uh, right but do you feel um, if Charlie Parker was born in 1980, mm -hmm. would he be playing jazz? Would he be playing bebop? Uh, I don't. I, I mean, okay, that's speculation, yeah, obviously. Sure. Uh, but I would speculate that what was in him that drove him was in him. Yeah. And if that remained in him, I'm not sure whether it would be. Jazz, I think probably because uh, other things. I would guess that other things might be too limiting for him. Mm -hmm. 
But if he came up and his, let's say he was raised in a hip hop environment, let's yeah. say, for example, I think he would be just as creative as he was, but not necessarily in jazz. I don't know what it would be. Yeah. Maybe in jazz. And I think his environment has, has everything to do with what we do. Since, since we, we established you play with so many people, and it's important for me to just document some of the words or intentions of the master. So, Elvin Jones, oh. what, what would you get out of that? What, oh. what did, he, did, did he say things? Did he? Oh, he was great, man. I, I loved him, and, uh, and I feel like he really cared about me as well. He gave me my first recording, mm-hmm. and um, I did a record, Beyond the Rain, but... Uh, how I got that recording is funny. I'm playing in his band, and we're on an airplane flying from uh, Boston, I believe it was, to Los Angeles, and uh, <clears throat> I'm sitting there, and, I, and I, my seat was actually next to his. We were in, on the plane, and I, I think I had the window seat, and he had the aisle seat, if, I'm not, if I remember correctly. And we're there, and I'm quiet, and then he just says to me, he says, you want to make a record, you know? And I said to him, oh, oh, sure, sure. And I'm thinking, wow, he's going to make a record, and he's, I'm going to be on the record. And he says, uh, I said, yeah, sure, Elvin. And then he says, um, what you want to play? I said, whatever you want to play. <laughs> Just you know, anything you want to play, give me music. He says, I don't, what do you want to play? It's your record, man. And that's how I found out that I got a record, you know, that he did that. Now, I'm on my way. To, I said, well, when is this going to happen? He said, well, as soon as we landed at, in L.A. at the airport, Lester's going to pick us up and we're going to the studio. Mm-hmm. I was like, I haven't written any music. I haven't, you know, I wasn't prepared for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was, you know, I was like, oh, okay. So then he says, who you want on the record? And I, I thought, okay, we're, we're flying, the band's flying in, you know, so I, you know, it's probably going to be this band. And he says, I said, well, McCoy Tyner, can I get him on piano? He says, all right, I'll call him. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, man. So he called McCoy. When we landed, he called McCoy, and uh, McCoy was somewhere that he couldn't get there, so he said he couldn't do it. So he said, McCoy can't make it. Who else you want? So I said, well, how about Hilton Ruiz? I, I had heard Hilton before. And they called Hilton, and Hilton was free, so they flew him out there, and that was my first record. Wow. He said, oh, you want on bass? I said, well, we can use Junie. Junie Booth was, mm-hmm. I mean, oh, wow. was already in the band playing, uh-huh. so I thought that would keep that because Elvin seemed to like him. So that's how that happened. Wow, amazing. Yeah. So, I, you know, I was with him for a lot. And then he, he recorded two or three albums with me uh, when I was the leader. And, All right. And I learned a lot from him, man, just sitting there listening to him play. There's a song that I play called, that I wrote for him called Elvin. And uh, I'm playing, and it's a funny thing, because the first part of the song is a bass line with this kind of conjuncular, I don't know if that's a word. Okay, conjuncular. Yeah, you know, jagged kind of melody. Okay. And, but the bridge goes to this. That's the rhythm, and I wrote in the over this, you know. And sometimes jazz musicians they they uh, they want to um, just already do different things around something. And I said, no, 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 no. This this is this rhythm. You should just this, this makes it different from the you know the B different from the A. So play it like that. 
And I said, because I took that rhythm right out. It was one of the rhythms that Elvin used to play. I used to right. have him play. Yeah. <laughs> and so I wrote, I took that rhythm and used it as the basis for the, the bridge. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he kind of seemed what he brought into the drums. I oh. guess him and, and Blakey, too. Like, they brought in this uh, polyrhythmic kind of African thing yeah, yeah. that's... Yeah, Elvin had he, he had the, the tri- and the triplets, mm-hmm. Elvin's triplets uh, against mo- at the, up until that time nobody really used triplets like he did you know, um, but you're right there's that raw, and he always played on the backside of the beat, hmm. which for me today as young players they for me they have been there always different schools of guys that guys follow you know, it's like the Lester Young school and the Coleman Hawkins school for saxophone. Sure. Dexter Gordon and I mean we're always influenced by both sides but but then sometimes you hear some guys lean a little bit t- towards mm-hmm. one or the other uh, Lester Young I'm more or less from that side of it you know uh, Sonny Rollins more or less from the Coleman Hawkins side although uh, sure Lester Young played a big role in his uh, life Coltrane more from the Lester Young side for example mm-hmm. things like that you know and, and, and uh, obviously others so in my time, I, I, there was, it, for me, the, for the young players that I knew about that came up with me, there was Elvin and Tony Williams. Mm-hmm. And so many drummers went on the Tony Williams side, you know, right. a lot of them. But I've always, Elvin has always been my guy, even before I played with him. And um, Tony played way on top of the beat. Up. Mm. Right. He played up, you know, like it, it, right. it almost felt like you're, you're rushing, you know, like yeah. it, it has a certain kind of forward motion. Sure. And Elvin, more relaxed. Mm-hmm. It just, it was more relaxed. And I did a little research on my own, and I found out that 90% of the, uh, any songs that were big hits in, in any genre, you know, uh, so you name R&B, uh, right. like Ray Charles or sure. uh, anybody, right. really. It was always back. How about that? You know, Sly Stone, Rita Franklin, uh, you name J- James Brown. You know, if you, it's always they played more relaxed and on the backside of the beat. Wow. And except for maybe, uh, well, even George Clinton. You know, like Funkadelic when the sure. funk thing came in, that was really more like right on top of the beat. You know, right, right in the middle. Right. Because it had this kind of thing. But rare, but the most a reggae back. Mm-hmm. And I even found that, except in even Latin music, um, in New York, what they call the salsa, this was the yeah. salsa thing happened. But salsa is based on Afro-Cuban music. Sure. So salsa is, the guys I met, they, they all play up. You know, salsa, it's like, again, that kind of playing in front of the beat, almost. Mm-hmm. But when I went to Cuba, the, uh, the Cubans play relaxed and back, on the middle to back. So almost every kind of music I saw that really was popular uh, in any genre was always relaxing back. Wow. I'm glad to hear that because I used to get in trouble for being on the backside of beat. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe that was just dragging. <laughs> yeah. I guess there's that, there's that. Well, the thing is, that when you say that, play it on the top side of the beat, yeah. beat doesn't mean you're supposed to rush it. Right. The tempo's not supposed to, right. to get faster. And if you play on the backside, that doesn't right. mean it's supposed to slow down. Right. It just means it's, it's, you're relaxed. You know? so right. I always think, <clears throat> you know what the Autobahn is? 
In Germany, it's, the oh, Autobahn yeah, is a highway, but yeah. there's no speed limit. Right. So you can go literally as fast as you yeah. want to. So I always think of it like being in driving down the Autobahn in a Cadillac. Right. As, a, as, as opposed to driving down the Autobahn in a Volkswagen Bug. Right. You know, the little, the bug. You know, you would be like this in a bug driving 250 miles an hour. Sure. Right? You'd sure. be like yeah. shaking and you'd be on your guard. But people in a Cadillac, they'd be driving at the same speed. But, mm-hmm. you know, they'd be relaxed. You right. got comfortable seats and cars right. steady and solid. Right. So, you, you know. I always heard that in like the snare on, especially the Chicago blues stuff. That oh, the yeah. behind the beat thing. Yeah. That's Chicago style. Mm-hmm. That's it's relaxed. I just like to refer to it as relaxed. Just more relaxed. Yeah. And I found out that Charlie Parker he played behind the beat, and uh, if you think of everything he did, there's a video on YouTube you can see of Charlie Parker. He's sitting there, and uh, somebody else is there. I forget who the other player might have been. Uh, Another saxophone player, I think. Could have been, I don't remember. But <clears throat> Charlie Parker's sitting there, and he's just waiting to play. Then when his turn comes, he starts playing. And his fingers, he, he like I said, he, he, he kept his fingers on the keys. He, it almost didn't look like his fingers moved. Mm-hmm. Pharaoh Saunders is very good at that, too. You see, if you watch video, Coltrane, too. I'm, you know. Anyway, but Charlie Parker really had it down. His, his fingers hardly look like they're moving. You can see them press the keys, but they're just, you know, like some players, you see their fingers flying out, like you're doing sure, this. Sure, sure, sure. Then all of a sudden, he's, and he's playing, you know, then all of a sudden, so it comes like, and you're looking at his finger, and you're hearing all this music come out, and his fingers aren't moving. I mean, they're obviously moving, but right. it's like they're not moving. And he's like a statue. Uh, you know, he's, he, and I thought, I was like, I said, wow. He's playing all this, these notes and stuff, and I see that the technique. That's how he's playing all of that. And I saw another video with Coltrane with Stan Getz and Oscar Peterson, and same thing. Coltrane's fingers are just like that. And he's he's standing like a statue, yeah. all this moving around and everything. Right, right, right. And just focused all of that energy into his fingers. You mm. see? Yeah. Now you did your your heavy woodshedding period, right? You did. Yeah. Like- yeah. I still do it now. I'm, I'm, yeah, but yes, there was a heavy, heavy. Everybody has to do it at some point or other. Uh, eight, eight hours a day or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. I did that. And you had a, you had a system. You had, you were real organized about it. Because I mean, you could, you could practice eight hours a day and just waste all your time. That's That'd be great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's that. That brings me what my dad told me one day. I was practicing, and. Uh, he, he's listening and then he comes up to me and he um, he pulls the horn out of my mouth and shocked me because I'm practicing and I'm thinking he would be proud mm-hmm. and he told me he said listen he said he, t- he took the horn out and he made me sit down and he put something on tape or radio not radio on a tape or tape player and he said now listen I think I was playing Misty or start practicing Misty or something like that and uh, he made me listen, and I listened. And then he gave me the horn back, and he told me not practice. After I finished, he said he had told me to come into the room, 
And he had recorded me playing before he pulled the horn out of my mouth, and he recorded me after I listened to what he told me to listen to. And he said, What's, which, what do you like? And I, I picked, without knowing which was which, I picked mm -hmm. the one that was after I listened to, you know. Mm -hmm. And he said, there's a time to play and there's a time to listen. And uh, he said, because you think practice makes perfect. He said, it's not true. He said, perfect practice makes perfect. Wow. So that's a good point you make about you could practice for eight hours and waste, be wasting your time if you're not practicing the right things. Wow. The key is trying to figure out and know what are the things you should be practicing. Mm. So that helped me. Yeah. During, when I went into that heavy woodshedding period to yeah. hopefully practice the things. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Cool. Maybe the last, I'm, I'm just going to run through the list because I want to know. All right, you work with Michael Jackson? Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> I, I, I worked with him with the, the Jackson 5. Uh, okay, in that, back in the day. Back in the day with, the, you know, when it was the. So he was what? How old was he? I don't know. Because, I mean, he started. I'll he take 10, you back that day. Yeah, you 10, know, that, 10 that, or 12 or something. Yeah, whatever it was. Seven, eight, nine, ten. Yeah, something like that. Somewhere in there. Um, I don't re really remember. Right. But was time. there, I mean, could you see it? Could you see that? Because I've seen videos of oh, He was a bad man, bad young man. I, he wasn't a man then, but he yeah. was a bad, bad boy then, yeah. I, I mean, I saw his, there's a video on YouTube. It's his tryout video for Motown, and he's maybe eight, and he's singing... Uh, I got the feeling of James Brown. Yeah. I got the, yeah, yeah. I've seen that video. And he's like, he's like, uh, he's a man child. He's like, you, yeah, he's, he's tough. Got, he's got everything. Yeah, he he's was got tough. everything. And then I worked with him later uh, when he was older, when he was Michael Jackson. You know, mm -hmm. I, I took two, two periods. Um, but anyway, yeah. And did you, you get to speak with him? Did yeah, a little bit. He was uh, uh, not so much when he was a Jackson 5 because we were, you know, but uh, a little bit later I did. He was a nice guy. He was a really a nice guy, uh, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I, all the things that, I don't know anything about all that other craziness oh, no. that, uh, you know, they said, said yeah. and everything. So I can't speak to that, but I never saw that kind of person. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you were you were touring with him, or you? you, you I didn't tour. It was yeah. just uh, playing in the, uh, you know, when I played in the uh, bands and stuff when it was coming coming around. You know, when we, we, yeah. okay, local shows. Yes. yes. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I also like there's this uh, video of um, came out after he died. This is it. I think. It's yeah, that. I saw, you saw yeah, that. Yeah. So there's that moment where he's like, he's like, you know, talking about the. Bass player, he's like, no, play a little more like this, and then he just sings the funkiest thing you've ever heard yeah, in your yeah. life. Uh, I don't know. Did, was there things like? Well, you see, Michael Michael Jackson, you know, he said, you saw that um, that movie. This is it. Parts of it, yeah. Yeah. Oh well, in that movie, uh, the way he danced. I mean, one of his great contributions was his dancing. Sure. I mean, he influenced. Look at all. I mean, obviously influenced his sister Janet, mm -hmm. and then you look up and then Madonna and. Uh, Britney Spears and all these other people. That, uh, what's his name? Uh, I like him. Uh, he was with Britney Spears in the Mickey Mouse Club. Oh, okay. One of these young kids. Yeah, the guy. Uh, he was in a boy band, too. Uh, Justin Timberlake. Justin Timberlake. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he's got that yeah, yeah. thing. <laughs> all of these guys. So it looked like all of these guys. I mean, all the whole dancing thing. I mean, Michael influenced everything. Not only them, but uh, look at all the guys who could do the, you know, the moon. But like the moonwalk was Michael's 
it, you know, it's like he people thought he invented that, like like that was it. But that was done by years back. There's a you should the, the, the first moonwalk. Just YouTube it. Yeah. And I'm, it wasn't it wasn't Bojangles. He did one of them, but there was another guy, um, um, tap dancer that did it. They did the first the actual first moonwalk. Right, right. But what we found out is that Michael studied all the dancers from way back. Like Muhal took me back to James P. Johnson and all these people. He did the same thing as it relates to dance. And he studied and studied and he practiced and practiced. He woodshedded like Charlie Parker did. Right. That's why I said, if I don't know that Charlie Parker would have necessarily been a jazz musician, but whatever he would have been, if he had that same thing in him, it, he would have been the best at it. You know, he would have come out doing, yeah. yeah. And how about, uh, you worked with some of the great Latin players, Celia Cruz? Oh, yeah, Celia Cruz. Yeah, I worked with her. Ch um, Chucho Valdez. Well, yeah. you, you got the name. Eddie names. Palmieri. Eddie Palmieri, yes. yeah. Machito. Machito. Uh, I was in Machito's band for a couple of years. Oh, wow. And uh, Eddie Palmieri, I worked in his band. And then, funny thing, I did a concert at Carnegie Hall, um, and it was <laughs> it was Eddie Palmieri and, and McCoy Tyner. And I was in McCoy's band at the time, and so I thought that's funny. So, <laughs> so right. yeah, Eddie and I laughed about that. But Eddie, Eddie's a friend. Yeah, he's he's amazing. Yeah, yeah. As, yeah, I, I played with him, and and uh, yeah, Machito was great too. Wow. I met Mario Bowser, mm -hmm. and so I, I I got to know some of the history, the Cuban history, you know. Right. Those guys, you know. And I sat in the chair. Uh, because Charlie Park, Parker played with, uh, Machito. with Machito and Hubert Laws. Right. So you got to sit in um, in Charlie Parker's seat and you got to sit in John Coltrane's seat, right? Yeah. I mean, with, Elvin. <laughs> with Elvin, oh yeah. Wow, I mean, that's, 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 that's quite, a, that's quite a, like, a nice little nighting or whatever. To, yeah. I mean, to get the nod from those guys. Yeah, I got to sit in John Gilmore's seat. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. So to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, exciting. So uh, you got this uh, show coming up. That what, What's your current lineup of, of your band? Uh, this band's gonna, it's got Nasheed Waits, which who's on drums, whose father was in my band, Freddie Waits. Okay. And um, there's a connection there with Freddie and myself. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, actually, the connection with Freddie, it's, it goes even further. You know, I played with Stevie Wonder, right? So, oh. uh, so... Uh, <laughs> I didn't know. But Freddie... Played with Stevie Wonder. Do you, ever, you know the very first record Stevie Wonder put out called Fingertips? Yeah. Part two, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was recorded live at the Regal in Chicago, the one I okay. told you about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the drummer on that is Freddie Waits. Wow. So, here's how things go. Now, I, obviously, I didn't know that, but Freddie's from Detroit, or was from Detroit, like Elvin. Okay? Right. So, Freddie Waits, <clears throat> uh, later on, I had no idea, but he and I were going to become very close friends. But I didn't know that then, obviously. And um, so, fingertips, one of my favorite, you know, everybody saying, yeah, 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 you know, yeah, 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 yeah. And, <clears throat> and at the Regal Theater, which was going to be a place that I was going to play, mm -hmm. I hadn't played there yet because I was a kid listening to that, you know. Uh, but Freddie then, when I come to, there's another record that um, McCoy did called Time for Tyner. And this song on there was called African Village. And I love this song. And so I, I bought the record, and I'm looking at the people on there, and Freddie Waits is the drummer on this song. Okay, that's the next time I 
kind of see Freddie, right? So <clears throat> years later, I, when I come to New York and everything, and Freddie ends up in my band, you know, playing with me as the leader, and he's in my band. And I take him out. We travel all over. I took him to London. We went to, we played. There's videos with us in Spain and all over, and you can see on YouTube. And uh, he and I worked hard. And Freddie had these two boys and his wife and everything, uh, you know. And Freddie had two sons. Excuse me. So I called Freddie for a record date when I was recording with uh, Bruce Lundvall at, at uh, Warner Brothers, um, electric musician. And... Uh, Freddie couldn't uh, make the date. He, he, he actually he said yes, and we were good. And then he called me to tell me he couldn't make us. His wife had just passed. I mean, it, this happened in the time period he was supposed to make the record mm -hmm. with me, so he couldn't do it. So um, I uh, I said okay, of course, and I ended up writing a song for his wife. Uh, for, you know, uh, called Ballad for Hakima. His wife's name was Hakima. And then after I made the record, so uh, I, I ended up using um, Billy Hart, I think, and Jack DeJanette on this record. And, um, yeah. And uh, Freddie didn't do it. So then after the record was made, I had a tour in Europe and Spain and Canary Islands. And Freddie, he just lost his wife, and uh, but he had these two boys, and he didn't know how he was going to make the tour because he wasn't sure, you know, he didn't have... They, I, I said, watch the kids. Yes, I told him, bring the kids with him. So, he's, so he, we went to Canary Islands together, and he brought Nasheed and um, uh, his other son. His name is escaping my name. It'll come up. But um, so I, I made it possible for him to bring his kids so he could do the tour. Oh. So we, we, we were like two weeks in the Canary Islands. This, this gig was like that. And uh, so now his son Nasheed is playing with me at Dizzy's. Wow, that's beautiful. <laughs> yeah, amazing. That's a connection there. Uh, and I have uh, Kenny Davis on bass, mm -hmm. who's from Chicago. He just finished. He, he was in Chicago with me this time. Mm -hmm. And I have Anthony Wanzi on piano, again from Chicago. Both Kenny and Anthony were raised by my father. Literally. Literally. I mean, well, not okay, like musically. Li musically, musically yeah. Okay. Literally, musically. Li literally, musically. Literally, musically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, Kenny uh, told me, he said he, that my dad prepared him for his trip, went to, for coming to New York. Mm -hmm. He played with my dad for a year and a half to two years, uh, every day, every week. And Wanzi uh, too, so Anthony, so. Um, they're, so they're Chicago homeboys, so they're, they're there. And I respect, because the plus tet means there can always be different things. Uh, um, Warren Wolf. Mm -hmm. It's playing vibes. Oh wow, nice! And that's uh, June seventh. We said June seventh and eighth. June seventh and eighth at Dizzy's Club. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll definitely pump that. So uh, Stevie Wonder, man, oh. like he to me, a lot of these people you're talking about, mm -hmm. I expect will be listened to in hundreds of years in the same way that we still listen to Bach or whatever. Like, well, people still listen to Sunrise, I would think, or definitely Coltrane or so, you know. Uh, and I don't know. To, to me, it's like Stevie's like another Bach. I, I, yeah, he's great, man. Yeah. I mean, he's one, of, he's one of the most, he, again, he's one, in his genre, and he has a love for jazz, too, mm -hmm. uh, but he's one of the most prolific writers that we have in, in any genre. Yeah. 
And and so you got to play with him. What, what capacity did you get to play with him? Chicago the Regal Theater. Oh, wow. Okay, so that was when he was young. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, but he but older than fingertips. Okay. Uh, and then, oh, another place. Uh, oh, he came, um, oh, where was it? Oh, I can't remember. He came because you know he used to like to jam and sit in with people and play. And he, right. And that happened a few few times. Uh, he came like Prince. Mm-hmm. You know he used to do that. Right. You know come and play even with jazz musicians. Prince was like that. But yeah, Stevie and, and but I was playing with him someplace. It, it was a, one of those Chitlin Circuit places uh-huh. somewhere in in the Midwest. I can't remember the exact right, right, place. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you you'd play you'd played up and down this. Chitlin I circuit. did the oh yeah I did the Chitlin Circuit and with different. Various bands, you know. From some things, I don't know much about it, but I, he- I heard some people say that, like, sometimes the promoters would just not pay or something like that. That was oh. a rough, rough thing. Yeah, it was rough. Yeah, it had a couple. I, had, I got a couple of stories. My dad told me a couple. So he played out in a place called Calumet City, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a mafia in Chicago, mafia. Um, you know, Al Capone type. Well, later, but obviously, yeah. but. The, but and he went to go get the money, and the guy put a 38 on the table and said, you've been paid. So he, they had to leave so without getting paid. Yeah. Wow. Mafia was pretty racist back then. Uh, uh-huh. So, yeah, they, they weren't. But And my dad, ah, with Sun Ra, this is, this is what I'm telling you. I'm, I'm going to tell you why. This is, uh, they used to play Calumet City, and they put them behind, the musicians behind a cage. And... Uh, Black musicians had to play with their eyes looking up at the ceiling because they didn't want them looking at the white girls. Wow. And Sun Ra, my dad was playing with Sun Ra in one of those places, and they had to play like that. And then they didn't want to pay them. And there's a whole story, but I won't get to get into this whole story. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, there's we a, got a minute. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know. Because no. it's like a, a myst, you know, it's a mystical story. Like, they were there my, uh, and, and playing, and then after this, uh, they wouldn't pay them. Sun Ra went to get paid, and they wouldn't pay them. And plus, they were behind a cage because they didn't want them fraternizing with the women, white women. And they had their eyes like looking, they had to look at the ceilings so as not to look at the, right? So Sun Ra told us, uh, told us uh, guys, uh, get your, you know, get your instruments, and we're going to go out this way. And something happened or some kind of thing, and they, they went out. And my father said, he didn't know what was going on. He said, but, you know, when they got in their cars and they were driving, not no money and everything, and looked back, there was smoke coming out of the club. Wow. And the club had somehow caught fire, and Sun Ra had predicted this or something like that, you know. Mm. And my father, he just, he was like, <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, there's a yeah. lot of those Sun Ra stories. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. That was one of them. My father, he experienced. He told me that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. All right. Well, on that note. Um, but you you had, I'm sorry, but you have other. Oh, uh, sure, man. I, I mean, uh, Mingus? You played with Mingus? Yeah, yeah. That was a great one. All right. So what was the deal? I mean, is Mingus is sort of the reason I came to New York. Okay. Um, he was playing at a, a place called The Amazing Grace. I remember this. And I came up uh, to sit in. I went up there and I asked him if, if I could sit in. And he had Don Pullen, mm-hmm. um, Danny Richmond, George Adams, and Jack Walrath. Yeah. And so I went in. I, I was kind of like out of school. I mean, I, I had been out of school a couple of years, you mm-hmm. know. So I just went up there and I was, I was a big Mingus fan. So I went to him, I said, Mr. Mingus, could I please sit in? And he said, 
it's okay with me. He says, but you got to ask George. And I thought to myself, wow, that's pretty respectful. You know, George is a saxophone player, right. so that I had to go through George. Yeah. So uh, I went to George. Which George was it? George Adams. George Adams. So I said, Mr. Adams. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Mingus said, it would be all right if I sit in as long as it's okay with you. And George said, all right, come on. George became, later, when I got to New York, he and I became good friends, too. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so uh, I'm playing. So I'm, I was thinking <laughs> uh, Charles Mingus would play a blues or rhythm or something you know like uh, you know easy like that this is a lesson I learned I'll tell you the lesson is anyway he called he called one of his songs that the music expanded three music stands that's what he called mm. I had to sight read the music so I did and George was very helpful he could have been he could have not been right. he didn't have to be and he, he just said okay we're going here now and you know like that so I made it through reading the music then I did my solo and everything and all that and everything. Afterwards, but I didn't mess up his music because, you know, Mingus had a reputation. For if you messed up his music, he'd stop, uh, embarrass you, say, I'm sorry, you paid your money to see professionals, and he says, but clearly the trumpet player doesn't believe in that or, or whoever he was ragging on. He was just completely call you out if you messed up his music. So I made it through without messing up his music. So, I, you know, and then... I, on my way out, this is the last song. He let me sit in on the last song. So I was, going, I was leaving. I went to him, and he was sitting over. And I said, thank you, Mr. Mingus, for allowing me to sit. And he said, hey, he said, you should come to New York. I said, yeah. Uh, he said, yeah. He says, we play at Boomers. It was a club called Boomers here. He said, we play at Boomers every Saturday. You should come. Come look me up. So he gave me the courage or the, the you know, right. the, the, the feeling that I could come to New York. And so that was, that was the first time. Wow. But that's when my father told me, he said, you never go on anybody's stage unless you know their music. <laughs> so that was one of my right. first lessons, right, you know. Right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, luckily you had, you had yeah. the chops to get through it. Yeah, but, but, but that was the point. You go, he said, why should he change his program for you? Right. You know, because I was used to the jam sessions and right. stuff, and I, I thought but that, that was a good lesson. Wow. And so you, you played in that band, in his band for a little while? Or you get well, no, I actually, after that, I never got to play in his band. Oh, okay. Because I didn't go to New York right away. Oh, okay. my, tri my trip to New York came a different way. Okay. So I ended up playing with uh, right. the, I, the, Cecil McBee and then Elvin and Sun Ra. I, I, my trip went there. Sam Rivers, yep. Elvin, and then later, and then Jack DeJanet and then McCoy. Right. Wow, you, you've always gotten to play with the best drummers. Oh, yeah, I love drums. So that was, uh, well, my Uncle Brush, you know, he was a drummer. And he was also a Tuskegee Airman, so you know, this uh, him and Percy Heath mm -hmm. served on the same in the same squadron. So. Oh wow! Yeah. Right, and your dad was in the Army band. He was in Navy band Navy with band. Clark Terry and. Uh, wow. Yeah. It's all there, man. Shaka Khan, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you know, on my block. Oh wow! Richard Davis lived across the street. You know, Richard Davis, the bass player. Yeah, and uh, my I, in fact I saw my f uh, friend uh, we grew up together on the street Frank Leslie his auntie was uh, Abby Lincoln wow so I used to see Abby Lincoln come visiting you know the family often I didn't, mm -hmm. you know, yeah yeah you know she's someone who I think people are more and more coming around to oh, realizing yeah. how important she was yeah and, and one thing about her was that her late albums 
for as good as anything she ever did. I mean, yeah, she was she's writing great. great songs. I was she in love with her, man. Show. I was in love with her when she did the movie uh, For Love of Ivy, Ivy with Sidney Poitier. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Never came to fruition. Huh? Oh, no. Well, we could have maybe one day. But <laughs> anyway, All right. She got there. I mean, we hit. We hit. I mean, uh... Yeah, well, the Bobby Hutcherson, that was a big oh, thing yeah. for you, and you have a, a project based on him, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah I'm going to, well, at, at Dizzy's, I'm going to mention, because of this year of him passing. I mean, everybody's doing, you know, doing uh, tributes and things, but I just want to per, do personal tribute to him, so I'm going to do that yeah. at Dizzy's, yeah. Yeah, and you're, you're writing new music? Well, some music that he and I recorded together and some music that we played together and, and that we have in common together. Just right. to, yeah. One of the facts is he and I would play with McCoy and, together. And I played with him once with uh, Andrew Hill and uh, Freddie Hubbard and some stuff. So that, that was... You know, so these old school guys, did they... Like, I've, 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 I've interviewed Randy West and, and McCoy and like... Randy would say, oh, back in the days, we, we didn't speak much. We hung out, but we didn't talk. Cause I'd be like, "Well, what, what did you know Max Roach say?" And he'd be like, oh, we, "We didn't talk. We, we, you know." So was there like this code with the older generation where they were like, uh, uh, you know, uh, of less, less, just. Well, you had to earn your way. You had to be. Um, it wasn't like they just grabbed you and became your mentor and, and started teaching you. It yeah. wasn't like that. You had to come in. You know, it's like uh, you're a rookie. Mm-hmm. And then the guy, you know, you, I, what I would say is this. <clears throat> Today, with the schools and everything, uh, mm-hmm. young musicians, they get a lot of uh, attention by teachers. You know, I mean, that's right. the whole point. But the school, the University of the Street, so to speak, back then, was different. And you learned, but you learned by apprentice, sort of an apprenticeship type of thing. Uh, you could ask a question and they would tell you if you asked or, you know, things like that. But it, it, you had, and, it, and the, the thing is, you didn't get respect by sounding like someone else. Mm. See, the difference, that sort of changed here in America. But, you know, we have this race problem in America. It's at, well, we had, back then it was much stronger. So, you know, black musicians didn't go around sounding like other musicians. The, the white musicians back then that sounded like the, the only people that could get ahead sounding like or copying someone else were not black people. Right. Elvis Presley got where he got because he sounded, he was the first white boy to sound as close as he had at that time to a black artist. And it wasn't even that close? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> so, and, and, and uh, the, the, the players who, who became Coltrane clones, you know, the ones right. that really, you know, sounded like John Coltrane weren't black players and they you never saw a black player get anywhere sounding like another wow. great player wow I never put that together yeah I mean I, I, Stan, Stan Guest was a great player but he sounded a lot like Lester Young right you see and this this is the, the thing and one of the things is not in the, it's not in our in the community in our culture the black culture this is not desirable Wayne Shorter, if you, you ever hear Wayne Shorter talk, you know, when he's, he's up to, the first thing is about your sound. You have to have your own sound. 
my dad always said, he says, you got two ways to go, son. He says, you can um, copy, which is easy, or you can be, try to be an original, which is difficult, he said. And I said, why? He said, because if, as an original, you may not become, you may not be accepted. You know, people may not be able to hear what you're doing. You know, he went a long time before people understood. You know, his, he's had his own voice for a very long time. Now he's revered. Well, musicians always revered him, but, but before the public really understood it. Now he's, he's royalty in Chicago, you know. I'm, I'm, you know. And, <clears throat> but it took, it took time, you know, and it was difficult. And that's what he was telling me. But so if you look at all the great African-American players, they don't sound like Lester Young doesn't sound like Coleman Hawkins, doesn't sound like Ben Webster, doesn't sound like Sonny Rollins, doesn't sound like John Coltrane, doesn't sound like Wayne Shorter, and so on and so on. Charlie Parker doesn't sound like Eric Dolphy, doesn't sound, you know, I mean, just it's always about your individual voice. And that's part of what we do in the community on everything. Michael Jordan, the closest person you could look at Michael Jordan to would maybe be Dr. J, but not the same. If it's always about that individual voice, and you, you know, from Ray Charles to Stevie Wonder to from Muhammad Ali, Sugar Ray Robinson was maybe the closest, the closest person to Muhammad Ali. In Muhammad Ali, in terms of boxing, was Sugar Ray Robinson. How far apart they were, but Joe Lewis and Jack Johnson, you know, yeah. compared to Muhammad Ali or or Mike Tyson, you know, different. And that's part of what we respect. That's part of what you you you, you, you won't get in respect by sounding like somebody. Right. So when did you feel like you found your voice? Like your... I'm still looking for it. <laughs> I think you. My, we always said you don't. You, you, you find it maybe some after you're gone. Right. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I have it, but but uh, I'm still developing it, and it just you know it's still. Yeah, so wait, what are you working on these days, like, musically? Like? Oh, I'm working on a lot. Of, I have a lot of things. It's kind of, tech, I, no, not a lot of, there are a few things that I'm, I'm really seriously working on. Um, I had spent a long time working on me melodic. I wanted to develop my melodic sense uh, in a different way. That's why this album, Spoken Into Existence, uh, is very melodic. More melodic than people had been used to hearing me play in previous albums, you know. The other albums were more, I was, I was experimenting with uh, forms and rhythms and uh, things like that. Then I, I need to work on my melody. So, mm. so now I'm, a couple of things. Yeah, yeah. You'll hear when they, when they come out. All right, yeah, well, we'll, we'll hear at Dizzy's. Uh, awesome. Well, thanks for your time. This is right. great, great to learn from the masters. So, appreciate it. I appreciate it too. Thank you.